I just believe that the Lord is worthy, don't you? Oh, my God, I just can't tell you what that meant to me today to see that. This was not an accomplished pianist. Oh, my God, it was the most beautiful thing I think I'd ever heard when I got that today sent just to me. I don't know who this person is. And that's all I ask God. I just want you to love me. I want to be close to you. I want to be close to God. Religion has exhausted me. It's just exhausted me. But you know, I've never, when I look back on my life, and I think about all the good times that I've ever had that were really good, Jesus was always there. He was always there. And when I look at all the bad times in my life, miserable times, disappointing times, even though there might have been some pleasures in them, all right, he was not there. Not, it wasn't about him. It was about me. It was not centered in him. But every time he was there, and I knew he was there, and it was unto him and for him, it was just the most wonderful times in my life. I want to correlate with you this, tonight John chapter 4, with some passages in Isaiah. And I'm going to ask you, if you would, instead of going to John 4, I'm going to ask you to go to Isaiah 12, where I want to really speak to you out of the Old Testament, things that Jesus was saying in regards to this encounter that he had with the woman at the well. I want to give you what I believe is a prophetic word tonight. I'm not a prophet, but I believe this is a prophetic word. And I believe this is a word for this generation. I believe it's an appropriate word for this church. Because I believe this church is going to be used greatly by God in ways that you never have been, but you will be. Because I believe you're the kind of people that will receive what God wants to do. And not every church will. Even churches that are humbled before God, they will not receive this. But I believe that you will. And I think that's why you're going to need a bigger building. It's not for the crowds that are here. It's for the ones that are coming. It is. It's for the ones that are coming. And it's not because of y'all. It's because of Jesus. It's because of his power to save. It's because of the power of the Holy Spirit who alongside of you witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And I believe men are looking for that life. And I believe God is going to show it to them without a veil. But it's going to be very evident and very clear. I don't want to miss that. I told my church... You will not hinder what God wants to do in this earth. I will leave you to be with him. I will not let you stop what God wants to do. I mean that. That's the only thing that I desire. And so there's a woman who approaches a well at the heat of the day. I don't want to make this dramatic. I want to teach you something. Not that being dramatic doesn't teach you something. But I just want this to be very clear. So this woman has lived a life of sin. She has been married five times. She's living with a man. She has been ostracized and unwelcomed in her society. She can't go to the well in the morning or the evening when the other ladies go because she's not welcomed in their com company. So she has to go in the heat of the day when nobody else is supposed to be there. Jesus, whose steps are ordered of the Father and is everywhere where he's supposed to be, when he's supposed to be, is at that well in the heat of the day. He sends his men away because obviously if she sees a group of Jewish men, she's not going to come to the well. So he is there postured in some position, I believe, on the opposite side of the well, probably sitting down with his back against the well. I tend to think that. So she wouldn't see him. When she approaches the well, he then speaks to her. 
And he says to the woman, give me water to drink. And she's shocked. Why are you speaking to me? Why are you speaking to me? I want to talk to you for a moment to begin. There's two parts to this. The first part is the necessity of water. The necessity of water. I don't believe that we in America, and I don't believe that many in the church in America have really understood the insatiable desire of thirst. And I want to talk to you about the water for just a moment and its necessity. Of course, you know that water is essential to live. It is essential to carry the nutrients into all of the cells of your body. Without water, you will die. And so it's very, very important. And so we understand that Jesus talks about water and it sometimes represents the Holy Spirit. And so in this encounter that Jesus has with the woman, he says, give me water. She's shocked. Why are you talking to me? You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. And he says, I know. I know who you are. But if you really knew who I was, you would be asking me for water right now. What is Jesus referring to? I believe he's referring to Isaiah chapter 12. Jesus didn't just pull things out at random where nobody could understand it. And so he said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water. I would give it to you. I would give it to you freely. And the water that I would give to you would be life. And you would never thirst again. And she desires this water. Give me this water. She's thirsting for this. And he said, the water that I give to you, it will spring up in you as a spring of living water. Do you know that water can be stagnant and there can be death in it? One of the first mission trips I ever went on was about 32 years ago to the Philippines. I was about to drink a glass of water, and I was stopped by one of the generals in the, in, in the militia there, and he said, don't drink that. There's death in it. And it was a glass of water that was sitting in a restaurant. He said, don't drink it. There's death in it because it had sat so long. I didn't know that. But the water that Jesus wants to give you is not stagnant and it's not dead It is a living water. It is a refreshing water, and it never runs out. It never runs dry. That's the intention of Jesus in your lives, and I want to exploit this in Christianity today. I want you to really know this in your spirit and in your heart, and so when Jesus is talking about this living water and the thirst for it, I believe he's referring to Isaiah chapter 12. I'm not going to read all of these passages. I'm going to scan through Isaiah. And I'm going to scan through parts of chapter 12, and then we're going to go to Isaiah 55, and I'm going to scan through some of these things. But one of the things that's important about water, as we're talking about tonight, listen to this. This is not in Isaiah. This is Psalm 29.3. That's why I want you to kind of stay with me. Psalm 29.3 says, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. Where's God's voice? Upon the waters. That's one of the necessities of water. If God's voice is going to resound, there has to be water accompanying that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Holy Spirit began to move upon the face of the waters, and God spoke. And God spoke. When there's the moving of the Holy Spirit, there's the speaking of God. God declares when the Holy Spirit is moving. The necessity of water, the necessity of that well of life. Jesus said also in John chapter 7, he said that if there would be a living water that would come up out of your belly. And this he spoke of the Holy Spirit that those who believed on him should receive. When that Holy Spirit begins to move in you and begins to come out of you, God begins to speak through your life. That is the voice of God. There's something different about your voice and the voice of God. There's something different. Y'all have such an anointed minister and many ministers in this church. I love Rafe. I love David. I love all these guys that are wonderful. But you know when something happens and it's no longer Jared and it's the Holy Ghost, right? 
I mean, there's just a difference. That water begins to move. There's authority that comes out, and there's prophecy that comes out. Now God is speaking, all right? God, he's familiar to you because he lives around here, and he, he's, you know, just, your, he's your friend, and all, but he is an anointed vessel of God, and when the water moves, it's no longer Jared. It is the voice of God and the Holy Ghost producing something in the earth, And so I just want you to understand the importance of water. The Bible says again in Psalm 29 that the voice of the Lord is powerful and the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. As a matter of fact, in Psalms 29, it says, the God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. How wonderful it is when you have in a church not one person having the well of water springing out, but you begin to have multitudes of people letting the water come out of them. I mean, the singing is transformed. Now it's not humans singing so much, but it's the Holy Spirit singing through the people. The water is moving. The glory is falling. The presence of God is manifested. People are prophesying. People are giving messages. And we know, oh my God, even the laws come in here and say, of a truth, God is among you. It's the importance of the water. It's not the importance of people gathering but the importance of the water. So the water is so important, the necessity of water. We have to have this water that Jesus gives. And he tells the woman at the well, if you knew, you would ask me because the anger of God is after you. So so in this modern day that we live in, don't think for one moment God is not angry with sin. He is And don't think for one moment that God is not recognizing sin that is going on in our world and in people's lives. He is. And don't think for a moment that God can't judge sin. Don't think that God can't cause upheaval in the earth to judge sin and deal with sin. There are people that say, oh, God would never do stuff like that. I don't know what Bible they read. Because he has done that in the Old Testament, and there's more judgments like that in the New Testament. If you don't think God can judge the earth with calamities and tragedies, you haven't read Revelation lately. So these things really do begin to take place. And in Isaiah 12, we understand that the anger of the Lord is after me, and he is, it is upon me, the wrath of God. And at any moment, God could take our life. We could drop into hell. This woman has been married five times. She's living with a man. If she were to die in this state, she would go immediately into hell. She would be separated from God forever. And Jesus said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water because what is this water? And he tells us in Isaiah 12, in verse 2, he talks about this salvation that we have. In verse 3, he says, so with joy, we will draw water out of the wells of salvation. If you will draw water out of this well of salvation, it will pacify the anger of God. He will no longer be angry with you. He will no longer be angry with you. His anger will be turned away. And the God who was angry will now be the God who comforts you. How beautiful is that? You will begin to declare, God is my salvation. Jehovah is my strength. And you will begin to sing. You will be happy. Oh, there will be joy in you. I mean real joy. Not the kind of joy religion gives you. But the joy that salvation really brings. Jesus is my Savior. Oh, he's my Savior. He beat the monster who is me. He beat the monster. Satan wasn't my great enemy. I'm my great. I've robbed myself of all of my joy. I robbed myself of all of my happiness. I robbed myself of all of my. devil doesn't do that. He might provide opportunity, but I do it. But I have a mighty Savior. Oh, praise God. And he's my comfort and he is with me. And so we draw water out of the wells of salvation. What does this lead to? Verse 4, it leads to praising the Lord, calling upon his name, declaring his doings and exalting his name. Verse 5, it says we sing to the Lord. And this is known, listen, verse 5, the excellent things of God, it becomes known in all of the earth. How many of you in this generation want to believe, and yes, just you, how many of you want to believe that just you in a relationship with God through the power of the Holy Spirit can actually have an effect that causes the whole earth to know the excellent things of God? It is possible. God can do anything. Look what he did through Jesus in three years. Now, I know Jesus is God, 
But the same anointing that was on Jesus is the anointing that is in you. As a matter of fact, the same Jesus lives in you. And beloved, has his anointing changed? No. What he came here to do as a man, he lives inside of you to do now as the present comforter in your life. And so I want you to see in Isaiah 55, and he says, Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you come to the waters? Why wouldn't you come to the well of salvation? Why wouldn't you come to the only place where God's anger can be pacified? Why wouldn't you come to the only place that's going to give you a true song and true joy and true praise and true happiness and God himself becomes your comforter? Oh my God, he is so awesome. And so come, those that are thirsty, come to the waters. Now, listen, if you want milk and wine, you got to first come to the waters. There's a lot of people that want the milk and the wine before they ever come to the water. The water is the essence of salvation. A lot of people want the joy of God without the salvation of God. A lot of people want the nutrients of God, which means the blessing of God. Milk speaks of nutrition and wine speaks of joy. Well, you first got to come to the water. Then you buy the milk and buy the wine without price. So don't let some preacher on TV make you pay for this. This is free. You come. You get this from God. But you got to come to the water first. What is the importance of the water? Oh, I think it symbolizes this. As the deer pants after the water brooks, so my soul pants after thee, O God. Oh, I long to be with you, God. As they say to me day after day after day, where is your God? And David cries out to God, oh God, when will I appear before you? I am so hungry for you. As the deer pants after the water brook, the deer's thirst for the water, especially when they're being hunted. Imagine yourself being hunted by the anger of God. Imagine yourself being hunted by the wrath of God. And you're fleeing from that wrath as fast as you can. And you're fleeing to the wells of salvation where you know God's wrath is going to be satisfied in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And, it, and we are told, I'm not a, a deer hunter, and so we're told especially through the commentators that would write about the deer panting for the water book, that oftentimes it is the effort of the deer to get to the deep waters as fast as it can or the hounds will catch them. And so when they're descending down the banks of the river, they're careful to not touch the trees and not touch the brush or the bushes because it will leave their scent on there. So they carefully go down without touching anything so that they're completely hidden. They'll go and submerge themselves in the deepest part of the water, causing just their snout to stick out so that they can breathe. And they will stay under their water till the hunters have passed them by. And then they will come out to safety. We have come to the waters of salvation. We have dove deep into Jesus Christ. We have drowned ourselves in his love. We have drowned ourselves in his grace and in his mercy. And that which has been hunting us cannot find us now. Our scent is gone. Our sin is gone. Our old man is gone. And we are safe in the waters of salvation. Oh, praise God. Praise God. Praise the Lord. This is the importance of the water. But you can't have milk or wine until you have come to the water. you got to have that. You've got to understand the wrath of God against sin. you got to know how much God hates sin. you got to know how much God is willing to judge sin. And you got to run hard to the water. But when you get to the water, you're going to find there's so much more besides water that is here. There's milk. Oh, there's wine. All of these things that are there. Buy it without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what's not bread? Why do you do what you do and it's not making you happy? How long are you going to do it? How long are you going to watch that? How long are you going to pay for that? How long are you going to give another month's subscription to that? It has not made you happy yet. Run to the water of salvation. Hunger and thirst for God. I know what I'm talking about. You're me. Don't try to hide. You're me. I know you. I've had to run to this water so much. So why do you do it? Why do you do this? It's not going to satisfy you. Hearken diligently to me. Incline your ear and your soul will live. Your soul will live. Oh, praise God. In chapter 56, we are told in verse, I'm, I'm just going to kind of go through this. 
But in chapter 56, it talks about this relationship that we have with God, that salvation has come near and righteousness is revealed. And a man who believes in that, he's blessed, he's happy, he's to be envied. I believe we should be envied of all people on the earth. I believe people should see a true believer in a relationship with God and they say, oh my God, I really want that. I really want what you've got. I really, I, there, there's nothing like it in all of the world. Beloved, that is our testimony. That joy, that greatness of God. And so he says in Isaiah 56 and verse 3, it says, Don't you say anymore, you're a dry tree. You're a Christian here today. You're a believer. You don't have any souls that you brought to Christ. There's nobody that you can ever point to and say, Look how God used me in their life. Now they're delivered and praise God, he used me to pray for them and now they're set free. There's nobody that you can point to like that. You haven't led anybody to Jesus. Nobody asks you to teach. Nobody asks you to sing. Nobody asks you to pray and you just think, I'm an in. God says, no, you have the revelation of righteousness. Stop saying you're barren. Stop saying you. There is milk and wine for you to have and to enjoy. There's life coming out of you. And so don't say that you're a dry tree. And God says, I'm going to give you a name in verse 5. It's better than sons and daughters. This is an everlasting name. And I'm even going to do this to the sons of strangers. That's us, the Gentiles. That is us. He's going to give us a name. Those of us who love to serve God. Those of us who love the name of the Lord. And I, know, I love this in verse 7. It says, I'm going to make them joyful in my house of prayer. What is, do you get that? I'm not going to make them agonizing in my house of prayer. I'm not going to make them miserable in my house of prayer. I'm not going to make them bored in my house of prayer. God's not boring. We're boring. Prayer's not boring. We're boring. God's the most exciting person you will ever spend a moment of time with. I promise you he is. I am totally ADD. I really am. I can't sit still for a moment. I got to get out. I got to do something. I got to go somewhere. But I tell you, you get in the presence of God, and there's something that just arrests you. He's wonderful. And I'm telling you, even Pentecostals have made prayer the most absolutely boring thing on earth. I'm talking, God says, I will make this joyful in my house. That's what I'm going to do. And he says, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. That's what the house of God's supposed to be known as. A house of prayer for all people. Now, in chapter 61 of Isaiah through chapter 62, I'm going to skim through some of this. But in the beginning part, this is the story about Jesus, how the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus to do specific things. So let's just skim through this really quick. To preach good tidings to the meek. To bind up broken hearts. To proclaim liberty to the captives. To open the prison to them that are bound. Wouldn't you love that kind of ministry? I mean, wouldn't you love that kind of life? Well, what's your ministry? You know, what is your gift? Oh, I've got this prophetic edge and I warn everybody of doom and disaster. And I'm not, I don't want to demean that. But the anointing of Jesus, this is the anointing that I desire to have. I want to preach good news. I want to tell somebody some good things, you know. I want to bring good, glad tidings to them. I want to bind up broken hearts. Isn't that wonderful? Proclaim liberty to the captives. Open up prisons to those that are bound. To tell people this is the year, this is the moment that God will accept you. I want to comfort those that mourn. Wow, what a ministry. How beautiful would that be? What if our churches were filled with people like that? Just wasn't a pulpit ministry. But everybody in it had the anointing of Jesus Christ. And everybody is healing the broken hearts. And everybody is binding up the wounds. And everybody is setting the captives free. And there's such joy in the house. Everybody's praying for everybody. Praying for the nations. We see the glory of God going throughout all of the earth. This is what God intended. Religion hijacked it. But this is what God intended. This is what he wanted. This is the anointing of Jesus to comfort those that mourn. And he says in verse 3, to give beauty for ashes. Wouldn't you like to just give some people some beauty who feel like they're so ugly? People who are draped in their shame. People who are embarrassed to show their face. And you'd just like to take that garment of shame off and put some beauty on them. Take those ashes off. You don't have to wear those anymore around here. 
Come on, let's get those ashes off of you. And let's put some beauty on you, the beauty of the Lord and the beauty of Jesus. Let's give some oil of joy. Let's stop with all this mourning now. Let's just have some oil of joy going on. And let's have garments of praise instead of all this heaviness. Let's have some garments of praise. You know, I'm talking about believers, right? I'm talking about believers. You know, we're, we're experiencing a lot of people coming into our church. We're experiencing a lot of people that don't know where we've been and don't know who we are. Well, I, I, I simply said to all of the church not long ago, I'm aware of the virus. I'm aware of, how many of you are aware of the virus? I'm aware of the virus. And I'm not talking about COVID-19. That COVID-19 is so small you can't see it and everybody seems to be somewhat afraid of catching it. And it's like, oh my gosh, I got it. You know, and, and there's all of this fear. And I understand it because you can't see it. It's microscopic, but you're, you can be fine one day. Now you got the virus and you got a headache. You got a little fever. Something's wrong. Oh, my God, am I going to die? Well, I'm aware of the virus. People come into our churches. They don't know who we are, where we've been. They could come in and they can cause that body to become sick. Therefore, I say to this church... You as believers who know where you've been, you know what you've been through, you know what God has called you to be, you can't let visitors dictate the atmosphere of the service. You can't. You can't. You got to be the hydrochloroquine. You got to be the rendesivir. You've got to be the cure to that atmosphere going south. You hear me? I mean that. I mean that with all of my heart. And so, listen, we've got to have this, this, this planting of the Lord. Strangers are going to feed his flock. Verse 6, he says, you will be named the priest of the Lord. Men will call you ministers of our God. What an honor. Verse 7, shame. For the shame you've had, you'll have double, not double shame, but double glory, double beauty. For confusion, you'll have rejoicing. Everlasting joy will be upon them. Verse 9, their seed will be known among the Gentiles, their offspring among the people. All that see them will acknowledge them that they are the seed which the Lord has blessed. My soul will be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with salvation and righteousness. Oh, hallelujah. We should be joyful. We should be happy. In verse 11, the last part, the Lord God will cause righteousness to pr and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Wow. If we can't praise God in our churches, we'll never praise him in our streets. If you can't praise God in here among other Christians, you're not going to praise him tomorrow at work. You're not going to go to work tomorrow and say, oh, I just want to tell you what God did in church yesterday. It was so awful. No, people are going to come in boasting about their headaches. They're going to come in boasting about their drunkenness. They're going to boast about their booze. They're going to boast about their ball team that won or lost. They're going to talk about all of this. And you're as a Christian, you're going to sit there tight-lipped and say, I can't bring religion into work. Boast about God. They boast about their God. So we are supposed to do this. And my soul will be joyful in God. Verse six, Chapter 62, it says, I will not rest. I'm going to talk about his righteousness. In verse 2, Gentiles will see his righteousness. Kings will glory in it. Do you know that God wants to be in such a relationship with you that he wants to use you? If you will really let God use you, if you will really sell yourself out to God like a D.L. Moody did not long ago and changed continents for Jesus Christ, he couldn't speak a sentence of English. He had no education, but he believed God and became one of the greatest evangelists that ever lived. And if you will serve God fully, you know you will stand before princes and kings and presidents and you will declare the glories of God. God gets you there. God gets you there. And so the Gentiles will see the righteousness. Kings will glory in it. And God says, this is what you are to me. You will be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord. Wow. A crown of glory in the hand of the Lord. That's like a woman who has just been engaged and she's got a beautiful diamond ring on her finger. And she, do you see that? Do you see that? Somebody loves me. You see that? You see my ring? You see my rock? You like that? It's sparkling. She shows it off. It's a jewel. It represents something. God says, that's the way you will be to me. I will show you off. I will say that to principalities and powers. Do you see that, Satan? You almost had him commit suicide. Do you see that? You see that? All because I came to the water. All because I drew salvation out of this water. You'll be a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Oh, praise God. And I love this in verse 4. The Lord delights in you. 
And he says about the land, I know this is specifically Israel, but it goes down, it talks about God's relationship with people. And he says in verse 5, For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And this is so amazing. This, this is Jesus. You, you probably rarely see this in life. So don't let your present marriage de- determine or interpret this phrase. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And, and listen, a bride and a groom love each other. And I'm going to tell you, that groom delights in his wife. He is looking forward to his wedding. He is looking forward to get with his bride and take her away from everybody. And he is excited about loving her. He is excited. He is enthusiastic. And then we as humans hear this, you know, the honeymoon ends, you know. You hear that sometimes. When did the honeymoon end? How long was your honeymoon? Six months, five years, 50 years? How long? And, and the, well, it never ends with Jesus. I mean, listen. Listen to this. Every day, Jesus is so excited about you like a groom is his bride. Every day, he's excited. He rejoices over you like that every single day. He's rejoiced over you like that today. That's why I wanted you to get on your knees and just worship him and let him love you a little bit because he's so absolutely wonderful and mighty. Verse 8, the Lord has sworn. He said, listen, this is so important. I'm coming to the second part. Surely I will no more give your corn to be meat to your enemies, and the sons of the strangers shall not drink your wine. I'm going to let you drink it. I'm going to let you drink it. I want you to know the importance of wine because the Bible talks about wine. Now, I'm not endorsing drinking, okay? So don't leave here tonight. Oh, Pastor Lee said we can go have some wine. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, even the grape, the Hebrew word is wine, all right? So I'm not talking about intoxicating drink to give you a license to go out there and get drunk. But I'm going to tell you this. The wine that Jesus makes is not from grapes. It's from water. Do you hear me? And the importance of this wine, listen to this. We see this from the Bible. Wine is the joy of life. Wine is the healing of oppression. Wine is the cure for sickness. Take a little wine, Timothy, with your often stomach infirmity. Wine is what is, 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 is taken and, and the drink at banquets and weddings. Wine is. Wine makes the heart glad. Wine brings courage. It makes one merry, and it causes one to rejoice. That's the importance of wine. Now, you don't get any of this till you first have the water. You must first have the water of life, the wrath of God pacified. You're in love with him. You're enjoying it. You've got milk, and now you've got wine. And God says, I'm going to let you drink the wine. I'm tired of the enemies drinking the wine. I'm tired of my enemies laughing at my bride. I'm tired of my enemies laughing at the church. I'm tired of my enemies putting the church second rate as though it has no power and it has no life. I am ready now for my church to drink wine. And you might say, well, how, how, how can you say that? Because this, this is a prophecy of the last days. In Isaiah 62, it's a prophecy of the last days. And I want you to just come and, and read this with me. And so he says in verse 9, But they that have gathered it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And they that have brought it together shall drink it in the courts of my holiness. Verse 11, behold, the Lord has proclaimed unto the end of the world. This is an end time prophecy that God is declaring to hell and to the nations of men. There's coming a day when I'm going to let my bride drink her wine. She's going to drink it in my house in holiness. And she is going to enjoy it. And I'm going to rejoice over her as a groom rejoices over his bride. I'm going to show the world what they have discounted and trashed and called as uncommon. I'm going to say that is my bride that I love. And I am jealous for her. And she bears my name. She is the stone, the rock, the jewel that I hold up. And I want to show up. She is the diadem of my crown. How dare you talk about her like this anymore? 
And God is going to do something in his church in the last days. And so I want you to go with me now to John chapter 2. And I believe this is the last scripture that I'm going to read. But I want to read all of this with you tonight. And I believe this is where I want to share with you something that is prophetic in this regard. In John chapter 2 verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said to them, they have no wine. And he said to her, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. His mother says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. I love this. She knew him. She knew him. She saw compassion in him her whole life. She saw something unique. He's never worked a miracle in his life. But she probably knew as his mother that the events now of why you are here are upon us. And she comes down to her son and she says, they have no wine. He says, what do I have to do with you about that? And she says, they need wine. Then she didn't say anything else to him. She just said, because she knows his compassion. She knows that there can't be a need anywhere and he not desire to meet it. She knew that about him. And so she turned to his servants and she said, listen, whatever he tells you, do it. And she left. She just knew it's going to be handled. It's going to be taken. She didn't worry about it again. Oh, that we would have faith like that in God. Oh, that we would have faith in the Lord. That I'd be able to come here tonight and preach to you what God wants to do with your life. And then I could speak to you, the servants of God, and say, now listen, whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. And we can just go and we can have a wonderful time. We can just have a wonderful celebration of the Lord. That's how Mary believed about Jesus. She just knew he's going to do it. So do whatever he tells you to do. However crazy it may sound, just do it. Do what he says. And so we pick up with the story in verse 6. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. That's got to be a gritney word. Firkins. I don't know what that is. I don't know. Pictures of water. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. You're to be full of the Holy Ghost. To the brim and overflowing. And he said to them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning doeth set forth good wine and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Now verse 11. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. This is the beginning of miracles. And what was the purpose? It manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. And I want to say to you tonight, I believe there is a harvest that is being brought in. And I believe it will be the biggest harvest that Christianity has ever seen. The biggest. And every one of you are needed. Every one of you are required. Praise God. Praise God. That's good. That's good news. You're not barren. Stop saying it. You're not a barren, dried up tree. Stop saying it. You're the sons and the daughters of God. People are going to call you ministers of God. You're priests of the Lord. You're anointed with the anointing of Jesus Christ. Because he lives in you. The same Holy Ghost that came upon him is the same Holy Ghost he gives to you. And what he does, you're supposed to do. The Holy Spirit did not come just simply to take up the vacancy of Jesus Christ. He came to exponentially multiply the influence of Jesus in the earth. And he needs vessels full of water. And when he has vessels full of water, he will turn them into wine. 
I say to you tonight that Jesus is saving the best for last. I want you to hear this. I did, I have not, I did not grow up hearing this. I grew up hearing about how our generation of Christianity was the worst. Our fathers were always better than us. We read their stories. We read, we read their biographies. We see about how dedicated they were, how holy they were, and they were. I respect my fathers. I respect Spurgeon and Finney and Whitfield and Wesley and Evan Roberts. I respect these guys. I respect Paul. I respect Peter. I'm not showing any disrespect to them, but I want to say to you that if I am not as great as my fathers, then all of this book of the Bible is false because Jesus said there is none good, not one. There's only one good, and that is God. And everything Paul or Peter or Whitfield or Wesley did was done by the power of the Holy Ghost, that same power that is upon you and me. And I just simply say to you tonight that our fathers were not better than us, and we will see things in God that the world has never seen before. I believe the Holy Spirit is saying, I've got more to write in the book of Acts before I take this church out. I've got more to write. And if Peter's shadow could fall upon the sick and they would recover, then maybe an internet service will fall upon a prison house and all of a sudden revival will break out among inmates. There's nothing too hard for God. Nothing too hard for God. One of the great pilgrims of the past, one of the great spokesmen of the past, William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, who was prophetic. And he was such an honorable man. He said this, he said, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Well, I want to say to you tonight that I believe William Booth to be right. And I believe that the world has passed through that and I believe that Christianity has actually fulfilled that. But I want to say to you tonight, that's not how Christianity will end. Come on. I want to say to you that our Christianity, our life, this bride of Jesus Christ, I believe that will be raptured from this earth and bring the close to a church age will not have a heaven without a hell and a salvation without a repentance and a baptism in the Holy Ghost without a tongue. I believe it will be restored to the church in its theology and in its doctrine and in its power and in its preaching. I believe we will go out as glorious as they came in. As a matter of fact, I believe... I believe, I really believe he saved the best till last. Quit talking about the fathers and start talking about the father. Quit talking about the apostles and talk about the apostle of our faith, Jesus Christ. Let God be able to say to the church tonight, Paul, my servant, is dead. Peter, my servant, is dead. John, my servant, is dead. Spurgeon, my servant, is dead. Finney, my servant, is dead. But I'm still alive, and I'm the God in the house. Rise up and go forth, church. There's more to be done. There's a glory to be seen. I'm going to tell you the best wine was saved to last with no disrespect and no disregard to my fathers that have gone before me that I respect with all of my heart and give honor to and thank God for what they did to give us what we have. They paid with their life to give us a Bible that we could read. They paid with their life to give us the testimony of Jesus Christ. They were sacrificed in Nero's gardens. They were fed to the lions in the arena. I'll tell you, they showed a boldness and a courage that I believe we also will have the power and the Holy Ghost to be able to show. And we might be called upon to do some kinds of things things like that. But it will be said of this last day's church, oh God, you saved the best till last. You saved the best till last. I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me, but there's got to be some hunger for the water. It doesn't happen because you go to church. You can go to church and still leave half full. Jesus said, fill it up to the brim. 
And when you fill it up to the brim, I'm not asking you to look in it. I'm not asking you to taste it. I'm not asking you to smell it. I'm telling you to serve it. Don't you tell me what you think it is. Don't you tell me how good you think it is. You take that water out of you, go give it to the governor and let him tell you what it is. Go give this water to the drug addict. Go give this water to the prostitute. Go give this water to the addicted. Let them tell you what it is. Oh, my God. Hallelujah. My God, you saved the best till last. Hallelujah. The best till last. I believe, I'm just telling you, I know God. I know him. I'm not saying that arrogantly or boastfully. I've been born again. I commune with the Lord. I love the Lord. And I know him. And I know what he says. And I know what he speaks. And I know his heart. And I promise you this. You listen to me carefully. The greatest judgment the world has ever seen is about to occur in this earth. We have seen the greatest atrocities in the earth. We have seen the slaughter of literally tens of millions of people through communism, Stalin, Marxism, every, over the history of the world, the slaughter of the Jews. We have seen the greatest atrocities throughout human history. We have seen and we have heard of God's judgments where Babylon surrounded the city of Jerusalem and starved the people out to where they would eat their own children during the days of Jeremiah. And the Bible says that all of these events, almost combined all together, do not compare to what is about to happen in the earth. And God says, in the, in the near future, in the near future, there is going to be such death and such war and such slaughter that it's going to bring famine into the earth and pestilence and sickness everywhere. I'm going to open up the atmospheres of the heavens and I'm going to allow men on earth to be burned by the heat of the sun. It will scorch them and it will burn them. It will cause the animals to retreat into the cities and they will begin to attack the people just to eat. There'll be nowhere that's safe. I'm going to allow meteorites to come through those holes in the atmosphere and they're going to strike the earth causing tidal waves and destruction and poison in the waters. The waters will be turned to blood and the animals in the seas will die. Over half of the world's population will die. Billions, billions of people in the span of just a few years. I'm going to unlock the prisons of hell. And I'm going to allow demons to come out of there that I put in prison because of their violation with humanity. Thousands of years ago, I'm going to release them. They have a purpose in the earth. I'm going to allow them to sting men on the earth with the sting of a scorpion. Men are going to beg to die, but they're not going to be able to. They're going to cry to the rocks to fall upon them, but they're not going to be able to die. They're not going to be able to have death. It's going to escape them. They're not going to be able to. And if those days were not shortened, no flesh would be left alive on the face of the earth. That is the judgment that is about to come. I believe, where's my sister right there who spoke this morning? I heard the Holy Ghost. I heard what she said. I wanted to speak it, God said tonight. And this is what he said, the people, the people, the people. Were you here this morning? Did you hear? Did you hear the wailing? Did you hear the weeping? Did you hear the crying in her heart? It was the weeping and the crying of the Holy Spirit for the people, the people, the people, the people. I love the people. I love the people. I love the people everywhere. I love the people that are bound in darkness. I love the people that are bound in destruction. I'm bringing judgment to the earth, and I love the people. I don't want to judge them. I don't want them to die. That was what you said. And I can promise you this, that God... 
will not allow that kind of judgment to come on this earth without allowing a revelation of his beautiful son, Jesus Christ, and the beautiful gospel that he brought to be seen like the world's never known. If the world is going to be judged like it has never been judged, even worse than Noah's judgment, then God will give a revelation of Jesus like the world has never seen. The best wine is saved till last. That's us. And I do not want to miss it. I had a man this morning preach in my church at our 9 o'clock service who was saved out of the Jesus movement. Some of you are too young to know what that is. And some of you may not have been in the church much to know what that is. But back in the 60s and 70s, we had a wild time as Americans. And we had a hippie movement. And this hippie movement was all about love and passivity. About rebellion and sex and music. And by the millions that generation of young people took to that. And all of a sudden, a move of God began to occur in that Jesus movement. And men and women began to get saved. Millions got saved. They came to church in sandals and shorts and tie-dyed shirts. Long hair, hadn't bathed in days. And the church said, not here. The harvest was coming in, and the church said, not here. They didn't believe it was real. They didn't trust the people. There were some that did, like Chuck Smith in California. He said, you can come here. And his ministry exploded. And multitudes began to come into the churches. And other churches began to receive them. And they came in and they didn't have these deep and incredible hymns that the church was so used to singing. They basically had these short little love choruses that they sang to God. That's all they knew. They didn't grow up in church. That's all they knew. And now we're saved and we want to sing to God. And we want to sing these little love courses we wrote to God. Oh, that's not deep. That, that's not rich. That, 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 that doesn't have all of these other messages in it. Out of here, away from us. And they were thrown out. But others received them and others allowed them in. And a harvest, a great harvest came in. I had a man preaching in my church this morning that was saved out of that. One of the most beautiful men I know. One of the great followers of Christ. Great friend in my life. I thank God for the Jesus movement. Well, I'm going to tell you something. The devil has raped this generation. You listen to me. He's raped it morally and emotionally. He's raped it with social media. He's raped it with dead-end causes. He's raped it and exposed it, and he has exhausted emotionally this young culture with the no-answer atheism. And none of these things satisfy. And brother, multitudes are about to come out of Antifa and BLM and others like that who know nothing about church. They know nothing about our music. They don't know how to dress. They don't know how we talk. And they're coming because they're spiritually bankrupt and they're running to the water. And what are you going to do with them? The anointing of Jesus is on you to heal them. Bind them up. Set them free from their captivity. Give them something that will really satisfy their thirst. But if it don't satisfy you, 
Don't you think for a moment it's going to satisfy them. No time for games in this harvest. This is an end times demonstration of Jesus Christ that will surpass what the first generation brought. Not that we're better than our fathers, but God loves the people so much. I will show them my son before I show them my judgment. And I will do that through my church. And I ask every one of you. Now, I'm telling you something because I know us. I need a lot of work done in my heart to receive those people. I need a lot of work done in my heart. I need God to, to really cause a compassion and a love. I, I guess what I'm saying is fill it up to the brim with water. Let it overflow a good bit. Let it get everywhere in him. And then you begin to take that water and give it out, and you will find that it's wine. Wine is joy. We ought to be the happiest people on earth. I love life. I love Jesus. I love joy. I love it. I love it. The, the, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, not agony and depression and despair in the Holy Ghost, but righteousness, peace, and joy. That's the water of salvation. That's the wine of the Lord. But you won't have wine unless you have water because that's what Jesus uses to make wine. I want you to stand with me. I want us to turn to the Lord tonight. I'm speaking to you as a church. I'm speaking to you as a people. I'm telling you the harvest is right. Jesus said the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And this first miracle of Jesus that he did in John chapter 2, I believe will be likened to one of the last miracles Jesus does, and that is once again turning the water to wine that this will manifest his glory and his disciples will believe on him. How many of you want him to manifest his glory? I'm, I'm going to ask you tonight to come into this altar with joy and not with agony. We've repented this morning. We have been on our faces crying out to God. If you need to repent, repent. Do it. He's, he will give that to you and he will accept it from you. But I'm asking us to come to the wells of salvation and with joy draw out the water. I'm asking us to come to these waters and let us, without money and without price, let's buy some milk and let's buy some wine tonight. Let's be the servants of the Lord and let's love the name of the Lord our God. Let's allow a transformation to take place. God wants to fill us up with water and he wants to make us wine. And he needs a new wineskin. I don't want a Baptist wineskin. You won't be able to contain what I'm about to do. I don't want a Methodist wineskin. You won't be able to contain what I'm about to do. I don't want a Pentecostal wineskin. You won't be able to contain what I'm about to do. I don't want a non-denominational wineskin. You won't be able to contain what I'm about to do. I'm about to prophesy through six-year-olds. I'm about to prophesy through teenagers. Maybe it's not the teenagers in your church, but it'll be the teenagers from the streets who come to Jesus. But he invites us all to prophesy. He invites us all, our sons and our daughters. He said, I will pour my spirit out upon him. And in the name of Jesus Christ, come on, we claim this generation for Jesus. We claim the harvest of the end times for Jesus Christ. As the former, oh God, let there be the latter rain now. Let it pour out, God. Let there be blessings from heaven. Let your people be a joyful people. Let us bring a message that is good news, like the apostles did. Let us be able to tell the people, I want to bring you into the presence of someone that I have seen, I have heard, my hands have handled. I want you to fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with him, so that your joy might be full. Oh, God, restore the joy. Lord, let your bride in these last days drink the wine. Let us enjoy the wine in the presence of your holiness. Let your house be a house of prayer, and let us be joyful in that house of prayer. Oh, God, break up the strongholds that have defined prayer, that have defined worship, that have defined your presence, God. And, Lord, come in the power of the Holy Spirit. And, Lord, show us.
us what your presence really is. Show us what it really does, God. Father, we thank you for the fullness of joy. We thank you that you rejoice over us, God, as a groom rejoices over his bride. You delight in us. You long to love us. You long to be with us. Oh, God, let us press in. So I'm asking you to come into these altars with joy. We're going to sing. We're going to praise in these altars tonight. We're going to let the, the water fill us up. The Holy Ghost fill us up. Come on now. Come on now. Let's press into these altars. We're going to sing. Fill it up to the brim. Let it be full even more. I'm just going to ask you right now, without fear, to begin to praise God while we sing. I'm going to ask you to declare the things of the Lord. I'm going to ask you to celebrate God. I'm going to ask you to enjoy the house of prayer tonight. Some of you need to start dancing again. Some of you need to start running again. Some of you need to shout again because the presence of God is in our midst. Let there be the shout of a king among us. We're not a defeated people. We're not an insignificant church. The best has been saved for last. Oh, wait till they taste this wine. Wait till they taste this wine. Oh, my God, let it be me. God, I want to be in that number. I want to be a part of that God. I want to be that person, that church God that uses you. Russell, lead us, please. Let's sing. Let's just begin to praise him tonight. Let's begin to rejoice in him tonight. Let